Good morning. Good to be with you here this morning. I'm so glad we get this chance to come together, worship every weekend. Hey, what do you think of something like that? Do you like to be told you're doing something wrong? It's kind of a tough notion, isn't it? I want to cut our hero here, Jack Butler, just a little bit of slack, because in that, what if nobody told him how he was supposed to drop the kids off? What if he'd never heard, you know, south to pick up or north to drop off, whatever? You know, it seems like he didn't get it until he was already doing it. This is kind of what we're going to look at today. We're going to look at this notion of how we do church, and specifically the part we've been talking about a bunch, how do we make disciples who make disciples? And I'm thinking in this, we'll see, maybe we've been doing it wrong, but I want to cut us a lot of slack because maybe we didn't know there was a manual. Maybe we didn't know there's some instruction in how we're supposed to do this. We're deep in the middle of this make series, focusing on making disciples who make disciples. So if you'll turn with me in your Bible to 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to dive in and get busy here today. We started talking about this months ago. We talked about the biblical mandate from Matthew 28, make disciples. Then we looked at the the meaning of that word disciple. We just recognized it, that's someone who follows Jesus. Then after that, we looked at the model Jesus used because he selected his 12 disciples from a much larger crowd that was following him around as he was doing ministry. And then for the last several weeks, we've been walking through the, the marks or the makeup of a disciple. Pastor Dan's done a really good job of helping us see that we'd have to be careful about eliminating anybody. We don't want to disqualify anybody from making disciples. Because when we look at these guys, they had some issues. Jesus' disciples had humility issues, pride issues, spiritual blindness. We kept coming back to that question, these guys remind us of anyone? I was like, yeah, it's me. (laughs) I see me. I struggle with a lot of these things that those 12 guys Jesus chose did. And so the takeaway should become, we can't disqualify ourselves from this mandate to go and make disciples who make disciples. Disciple isn't some term for super Christian, you know, and because I've messed up along the way, now I can't go do it. The reality is we can do it, and we're supposed to do it, but it's not because of anything wonderful or incredible about us as followers. It's because of his holiness. It's because of the sovereignty of the one that we're following, Jesus Christ. And so this becomes a big deal for us because we keep saying over and over this mandate from Matthew 28 and verse 19. reads, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. It's just that. It's a mandate. It's a command. We're saying it's for the church. It's for all Christ followers. Now, would it have been easier if the command was simply, go therefore and evangelize the world? Well, yeah, that's easier, but it doesn't say that. It says we're supposed to go and make disciples. This verse indicates it's not enough to just tell people, hey, you need to follow Jesus. You need to be saved. Because we can't do that part anyway. Saving's all God. It's the second part that we can do. We're supposed to make disciples. In the Gospels, you see people who believe in Jesus, and that's fantastic. Those people are going to have eternal life with God. It's incredible. But then you also see Jesus calling people to follow him. And that's different. I mean, that's more than just believing. That's, That's living out your faith. So I think Matthew uses this term, make disciples, because it combines two really important elements. And one is, for sure, conversion. One's being saved, being new in Christ. But the second part is just as important. And salvation isn't really supposed to be separated from that second part. And the second part is our part. It's a life of discipleship. If we neglect that part, the make disciples part, then it's easy to fall into a, a bad trap, a trap called easy believism. You ever heard that one? Just believe in Jesus and your life will be better. 
if you've heard that, I'm sorry. I mean, that's a lie. Somebody broke one of the Ten Commandments to get you to try and follow Jesus. They lied to you. Because we know that's not the way that works. We're going to see that in our passage today, but we know this already from God's Word. What does James chapter 1, verses 2 to 5 say? Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask a God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. That's a picture of life. It's not a picture of an easy life. It's a picture of an abundant life because that's the kind of life God desires for us. This is what Jesus tells us in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. So that's God's goal for us. It's abundance. As we follow him, we'll experience trials, and it's okay. We're supposed to because he has a plan and a purpose for us. Now, it's not always easy to see what the plan and purpose is. I'll give you that. Sometimes, real honestly, we won't ever see here on this side of heaven, and that's okay. It should make us trust God more. My boy Carson had an accident this week. He slipped and fell, and he broke his fall with his face. And it, <laughs> it was sad. It was, <laughs> it was not fun. It was not easy. He had to go get stitches. He had to go get x-rays. It was kind of a scary deal was made worse by the fact that on the day he did it, the school band was supposed to go on a field trip. They were going to go up to Powell Hall in St. Louis and see the symphony. He was really excited about going. Instead, he smashed his face. And so we're driving in the car. We're coming back from getting stitches in his lip, and he's really, really sad. I mean, he's really sad. I thought he was hurting really bad. And so I asked him, I said, hey, buddy, what's wrong? And he said this. He just crushed me. He said, I didn't mean to hurt myself. Why did this happen? I really wanted to go on that band trip. And I didn't have an answer. I mean, I don't know what God's up to all the time. None of us do. But I can't go tell someone, hey, just accept Jesus and you'll never smash your face. You know, that'd be a lie. Here's what I got out of this experience. I got to disciple my boy. I got to walk with him through this. I took him to get stitched up and then I took him to get the x-rays and Then I took him to Andy's to get a shake because he could only drink through a straw. Poor guy. (laughs) But we talked and we hung out. It was beautiful. It wasn't fun for him. But I'm discipling him. I'm not telling him everything's always going to be great. We get the difference there? So this is what we're going to do. We're going to continue in this make series. We plan on wrapping it up right after the first of the year. And then as a church, we're going to walk through the book of Galatians together starting in January. But today, we're going to start looking at how we're going to land this plane. Why are we focusing so intently on discipleship? And we're going to start talking about how it looks practically in our lives because maybe we've been doing this wrong. (laughs) Maybe we haven't seen the manual up to this part. I mean, we get together every weekend. This is fantastic. We open God's Word together. I don't think it's because we all have time to kill. I don't think it's because we want to get dressed up and sit up straight for an hour. I really pray that's not it. I pray it's because we want to learn. We want to learn from the Bible. We want to learn from God's love letter to us and then apply those things outside the walls of the church. The other days of the week, we can do that by being the best students we can be, by being the best employers or employees we can be, by being the best friends or family members we can be, all for God's glory. We want to do it right. So let's read our text today and see where God's going to meet us. Because I think this is, I think it's a manual of sorts for discipleship. 
out of 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. Paul writes to Timothy, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So today, out of just these couple verses in 2 Timothy, we're going to see this manual for discipleship. And then we'll stay in this chapter next week, and we're going to start looking at the method that Paul uses as he encourages Timothy, as he challenges him, as he makes him as a disciple. So first point we've got to ask, what's a manual for? I bought a new mailbox this week. Somebody uh, driving down Cape Rock Drive thought it would be fun to play a little mailbox baseball and take out my mailbox. So you can't say just follow Jesus and nobody will ever smash your mailbox because it's not true. So I bought a mailbox this week, and I brought it home, and my mailbox had a tiny little manual in it. I can't tell you what it said. I threw it away. I'm a guy. I can install a mailbox on my own. Please, you know. I'm not real bright. I don't always follow advice. But, but here's the deal. I also bought a riding lawnmower this summer. I kept that manual. <laughs> I read that bad boy front to back, just like it tells me to. I've saved it. Because here's the deal. I know I'm going to need this. At some point in time, I'm going to need to change a belt. I'm going to need to take the blades off and sharpen them. And if I have this, here's something I can guarantee. It'll be better. I'll get less frustrated. I'll have more skin left on my knuckles when I get done doing that if I'm just willing to look at this manual and learn from somebody who knows more about mowers than I do. Learn from somebody who's been down that road, and they've written it all in this handy little format for me to reference it so I can keep it. So we're going to go about trying to follow this mandate to make disciples. It's a good idea to have a manual, something to go by, so we can learn and hear from somebody who's done this before us. And our manual is going to come right from this passage in 2 Timothy. Just a great short little read, both First and 2 Timothy, written by the Apostle Paul to a pastor that he has discipled named Timothy. Now, at the time Paul's writing this in 2 Timothy, Timothy's already been doing ministry for like 15 years. And he's, he's not an old guy. I mean, he's maybe in his mid-30s. He could be in his early 30s. And Paul's not with Timothy. That's why he's writing the letter. Paul's in prison. And this letter, 2 Timothy, is one of the last things we get that Paul wrote. Because honestly, he's probably just weeks away from dying. He's a couple weeks away from having his head cut off. But he writes this letter because he's not concerned about himself. He's worried about Timothy. Paul learns that Timothy has been struggling. Timothy is weary. Timothy's getting burned out. And so Paul, as, as Timothy's mentor, he wants to encourage him. That's discipleship. That's making someone. And the way Paul chooses to do it through the entirety of the letter is he reminds Timothy who he's working for. He says, hey, this is a hard season of ministry, but you don't work for man, you work for God. Remember that. It's not always going to be easy. Sometimes you'll fall on your face, but it's abundant. And Paul's reminding Timothy that it's his job to be on mission and show people God's love. Now, I want to take just a second and be clear on this. This applies to all of us. Don't get that notion that we can disengage right now if you're not a pastor. Like, like Paul's encouragement only works if you're in vocational ministry. The Bible calls us as believers saints, priests, ministers, ambassadors. So there's no such thing as a Christ follower who's doing ministry and a Christ follower who's not doing ministry. It shouldn't be that way. Now sometimes the difference is easy to see. You may never stand up and teach in front of crowds. You may never perform a wedding or a funeral. That's fine. So your ministry is going to be working at your job, living your life, paying your bills, providing for your family, raising your kids, all the stuff that you do. 
volunteering at, at Feed My Starving Children or a food bank, packing shoeboxes for Operation Christmas Child, tutoring kids, watching your neighbor's kids so they can go to work, whatever it is, that's your ministry opportunity. That's why we're focusing so intently on discipleship this semester because those things are supposed to be ministry. And they will be, they can be, if we'll just engage, if we'll just use those opportunities to show God's love to people because he loves us and he loves them and he wants us to walk with them. We're supposed to make disciples. Now again, would it be easier to just run out and inform people about Jesus? Say, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. See ya. I'm out of here. Yeah, I guarantee that would be easier. It would be a lot less messy. But I want us to understand this moving forward. It's supposed to get a little messy. Paul's already written one letter to Timothy. In that letter, in 1 Timothy, he's a more experienced pastor. He's telling a younger guy how to oversee the work of the church. And this is what's burning Timothy out. He, He has to bear responsibility. He's leading a church in Ephesus, and he wants to plant churches in other Asian cities. And so Paul tells him, hey, you've got to combat false doctrine. You've got to have sound teaching. Hey, here's how you develop godly leaders. Here's how you encourage people to live godly lives. He's discipling him. But it's hard work. And so Paul gets to this spot in 2 Timothy, and he understands he's at the end of his life. And one of the big takeaways he wants Timothy to understand is people need to be encouraged to press on especially when it's hard. Now, it's going to get hard, but if we stop and we're honest with ourselves and we evaluate it, I think we really know that's going to happen, don't we? Did we expect something different? If we've said at some point in time in our lives, hey, I want to follow Jesus. Well, Jesus was born in a smelly manger in a tiny little one-horse town. He was born to parents who were very young, very newly married. He worked a hard job. He worked in construction, he worked labor. The end of his life, he was homeless. He's basically a homeless guy. Walked around without a place to lay his head. He found some really good friends. Ultimately, they betrayed him. He ended up beaten. He ended up murdered. Do we really think after we accept Christ, our lives are going to be easy because his was? I mean, this is not a, a popular message to preach, but let's be honest, we're going to encounter hardships. We're going to encounter trials in our lives. And this is where Paul writes to Timothy. And he's not as concerned about his own impending death as he is Timothy's life. Paul wants more for Timothy. That's the calling card of ministry, really. You end up wanting more for somebody than they want for themselves. Maybe you've seen this. I have. Have you ever ministered to somebody who's struggling like an addiction issue? Struggling with a big sin issue and you're pouring into them? You're opening up God's Word and you're telling them, this would be the best thing for you. This would be the most abundant thing. And they don't listen to you. You want the very best for them. You don't care what it costs you. They don't seem to care at all. You want more for them than they want for themselves. I've recently lost friendships in this world because I love people so much that I wanted better for them than they wanted for themselves. And so they told me they don't want to be my friend anymore. I mean, that hurts, but what am I going to do? I'm just going to ignore sin in people's lives? Try to eliminate the truth out of God's Word? It's okay, I think we can work around it. No. At that time, you've got to lean in on it. You've got to trust that the things God tells us to do, those are going to be the very best things. That's where the abundance is, even if it's hard. And it will get hard along the way. 
There's two big things in this passage, two big takeaways as our manual for discipleship. One is we've got to be strong. And the second is we need to entrust. So let's start with be strong. Look at verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2.2. Paul says to Timothy, you therefore my son, I love that. He says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. So here's what Paul's telling Timothy. If you're going to be able to endure the trials, the setbacks, the hardships, the injustices, the pitfalls, all those things, you've got to be strong. You've got to be strong for those external things. And then personally, we have to be strong to be able to deal with the consequences of our own sin. We're going to mess up on our own in addition to all those things that happen around us. And so if we're not strong, those things, both the internal and the external things, those are going to keep us from fellowship with the God who loves us and wants to be with us. They're going to keep us from abundance. Now, theologically, is Paul just saying, suck it up here? You can do this on your own. No. If we were able to suck it up and be strong on our own, we wouldn't need Jesus. Let me spoil this one for you if you're trying this on your own, because I tried it for a long time. It doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. Paul says be strong. How? In the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Don't be strong by going to the gym. That's a whole different thing. You can go to the gym. It's great. Don't be strong by going to a self-help seminar. Don't be strong by reading a book about how to tap into your inner strength. None of those things are going to do it. There's only one way to be strong enough to endure trials. That's in the grace that is in Jesus. Now you think about it, God's grace comes in different ways. We know that for sure. But no matter how we receive it, it's unmerited favor. We didn't do anything to earn it. We can't. We can't be good enough or smart enough or strong enough or whatever enough to do it. There's nothing we can do to earn grace. We're saved by grace. Now, if we've operated under that assumption, if we've heard that before, I get it, I'm saved by grace, but then how do I grow? How do I mature? Well, I just suck it up. You know, that's not entirely right. We can't just pull up our bootstraps and suck it up and grow. Now, if you think about it, following Jesus in our lives, it will require discipline. It does require dying to ourselves. It does require striving to be more like Jesus. But the reality is that the ability to do any of those things, where does that come from? It comes from empowering grace too. It's all grace. It's all him. So Paul's teaching Timothy, you need this grace. It's found in Jesus. That's the only way you can be strong enough to endure these hard times in your life. If we today need to be strong, we need grace. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We can't work out to get it. Because grace comes in Jesus, period. Now, I know this. I know it. I'm sitting here telling you about it. But I struggle with this. I struggle with this all the time. And God consistently reminds me in my life, I'm not much. <laughs> I'm not much. I'm not the man God would have me to be. We walked through that list, the, the makeup of Jesus' disciples, and they were selfish, they were prideful, they were clueless guys. I'm going, that's me. See, God is ministering to me. God wants more for me than it appears that I want for myself by the way I act and speak and think. I'm in way over my head. And I know that. There's no way I can pastor this church. Just, just no way. I'm not strong enough. I'm not capable enough on my own. If I try to do it on my own, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to let somebody down. I know that. There's no way I can lead my, lead my family on my own. It's not strong enough. I'm not going to be able to handle all the responsibilities. 
I'm in way over my head. In virtually every area of my life, I'm in way over my head. Maybe a few places where I'm not, but I'm probably in denial in those areas. We're not strong enough to do the things that God grasps us to do on our own, right? And we need to get that. As hard as that is, we need to understand that because then we can grasp the beauty of a verse like 2 Corinthians 12, 9, where God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. See, Paul learned that. He learned that through experience. He learned it from God. Now he's passing it on to Timothy. Now he's passing it on to you and me today. That's discipleship. When we share the things that God's allowed us to learn, whether it's through study or experience or hardship or suffering, whatever, in whatever way the sovereign God has determined that's the most abundant way for us to learn it, he's teaching us these things. And for us today, let me be clear, the Bible is always going to be the primary way. It's always going to be the most valuable teacher. So everything else that happens, our experiences, our circumstances, we need to evaluate it through the lens of God's word. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul's struggling. He has a thorn in his flesh. He calls it a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Does that sound easy? And he prays for God to take it away. Three times he prays. And God says, nope. I kind of like that thorn in you. Because it makes you remember where grace comes from. Grace and strength come from God, not from ourselves. Now, would it have been good for Paul to learn that lesson and then just sit on it? Never share that with all of us through the incredible gift of his word? No, that would have been lousy. Paul's learned something from God, and now he's going to share it. He shares it with Timothy as his disciple. He shares it with all of us. That's the part we're supposed to get. That's the part of the manual that says how we're going to do this together. We're going to take the things that God has taught us through his word, through circumstances, through mistakes, through study, through prayer and petition, through obstacles and opportunities, we're going to take those things and we're going to take them to the lens of the Bible and then we're going to take them and we're going to pour them into people's lives. That's how discipleship works. And as we do that, others are going to grow from the things we've learned and we're going to grow too. We'll grow in that process, I guarantee it. I think this is where we've messed up a little bit. Here's maybe where we didn't have the manual. Because I've seen this before. People say, gosh, I'm really concerned about my coworker. I'm really concerned about my child. I'm really concerned about my neighbor. And so we invite them to church. Now, that's great. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. I love that. But I think sometimes we miss out on the ministry we could be doing. I mean, it's your neighbor. God puts you next door to them for a reason, don't you think? Here's the deal. You come to church. I'm not an expert on everything. I'm not an expert on anything. I know a lot about Cardinal Baseball. I don't know how that applies here. I know the Bible because I love it and I read it and I went to seminary to learn even more about it. But there's tons of folks, there are folks in this room who know more about the Bible than I do. I can't claim to be an expert. But we sometimes get this notion, well, I'll just bring somebody to church and they'll hear a sermon and it'll fix all the things in their lives. (laughs) Hear me on this. The sermon is not what fixes things. God fixes things. But the growth that we'll all get, the growth I'll get from studying and preparing, the growth we'll all get by listening and applying that in our lives, that may be the thing that God is going to use. He may, in his sovereign control of all things, be setting you up or setting me up to be an expert 
in somebody's life. Maybe you have a coworker who struggles with an addiction problem. And it's a problem that God has helped you overcome through his empowering grace. Would it be better for that person to come and hear some teaching? Or would it be better for them to sit and have some coffee with you and have you disciple them? I think sometimes we leave the discipling part out because it's messy, because it takes time. So we just invite them to church. What if you're friends with someone, they recently had a miscarriage, and God in his sovereign mercy has allowed you to go through that situation, and he's given you strength through Christ's grace to be strong. Would it be better for that person to come to church and hear a sermon? Or have you disciple them, be comforted and encouraged by them? Now here's the deal. These are both and situations, you understand. We want them to come to church, be part of the fellowship. But let's not leave out the and part. Let's not leave out the part where we get to be the experts, where we get to use the thorns in our flesh to minister to people. Because if we're coming to church every weekend and we're not living in community, we're not engaging with one another, we're not reaching out to lost and hurting people, we're not discipling people who are further behind us on the path, then we're not doing it right. Can we dive into people's lives and show that we want more for them? We'd want them maybe to learn from our experience so they don't have to learn from their own experience. Now, I get this. In God's plan for some people, the only way they'll learn is through experience. We want to bail them out, and they just won't let us. But if we really love people, let's not use that as an excuse to not jump in and help them. Maybe we can help them learn from mistakes we've made, hard lessons we've endured through God's grace. This is what Paul is telling Timothy. Hey, this is going to be messy. So you've got to be strong in God's grace. Next, he instructs him this way in verse 2, 2 Timothy 2. He says, The things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust those to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So what does that notion of entrust look like? Because that's a big word. If we're saying make disciples is a command for us, I'm pretty convinced there's no better verse in the New Testament for us to use as our manual than this one. What Paul is saying is that if the church of God is going to continue to grow and thrive, then we have to be good stewards of the things God's taught us. He's saying God allows the things that happen in our lives to happen for a reason. He has a purpose. We've learned from those things, and then we're supposed to then entrust that knowledge, that experience to others. We're supposed to make disciples who make disciples, who share their journey and their experiences. I read this quote one time. It said, the church is only one generation away from extinction. Now, theologically, I don't agree at all because Scripture says that God will build his universal church and the gates of hell will not be able to overpower it. But I understand the sentiment, I think, behind this quote. If we're not discipling, if as a church we're not passing the things that we learn on, if we're not entrusting those to others, then we are damaging the local church. But I think in church methodology sometimes, we seem content to say, well, hey, let's all get together and we'll all be fed. We'll all be taught. But then we've given up on this practice that Paul's challenging Timothy to, to take those things we've learned and pass them on to faithful people who will take them and pass them on. As soon as we stop doing that, we are one generation away from killing discipleship. The way that Paul mentors Timothy, the way that he disciples him, that's the manual for us. I heard a definition one time of the word mentor. I really liked it. So a mentor who's someone whose hindsight can become your foresight. 
said that earlier in the series. To really disciple someone, all you have to do is be one step ahead of them. Because for sure you will have learned more. You're further along in your walk with the Lord. You have more experience. And so you can take the things you've learned and pass them back. Maybe spare somebody some of the things that you've had unless God's going to use those to grow them. Paul uses the word to do that. He says it's in trust. It's a word that he uses five different times in these two letters to Timothy. It's a long Greek word, paradithemi. But it literally means to make a deposit. You place goods of trust with somebody else. So this is supposed to be a practical manual. I think there's a couple of assumptions in that process of entrusting that will help us as we pray to go, I wonder who it is I'm supposed to be discipling. The first assumption here is whatever we're going to deposit, whatever we're going to place in trust with someone else, it's got to be valuable enough that it needs to be guarded, needs to be cared for. And then the second assumption is the person we're going to trust with that, whoever that is, we're going to make the assumption that we can have confidence in them, that they're going to be faithful to actually protect it and preserve it and then pass it on. Well, what kind of things are we depositing into somebody else's life in a discipling relationship? It's our life in Christ. It's the gospel. It's the joys. It's the struggles. So is that valuable? Yeah. It's exceptionally valuable. And so you have to ask the second part. Am I finding somebody who's faithful? What about that person I'll deposit that information with? Can they be trusted to keep that message pure? Will they be responsible to take it and learn from it and then pass it on? There's a big difference between informing and entrusting. I'm standing up here informing today. Informing is simply conveying information. You have to disciple somebody. You have to grow them to be able to entrust things into them. We do this all the time at our house. We inform our kids. They go to school and we've got a question about, you know, why they got this grade on an assignment or what time of practice is. And, and so we tell our kids, hey, remember to ask your coach. Hey, remember to ask your teacher about that. And they go to school and they come back and we go, hey, did you ask? And they're like, oh, I forgot. Well, see, we're still in this process. We're, right now we're just informing them. We haven't really entrusted them yet. Entrusting carries extra weight with it. Because then there's that expectation that the person you're pouring into is going to be adequately trained to assume those duties and those responsibilities of taking that deposit and then faithfully passing it on. So you want to look for someone. You want to pray about someone who's going to be faithful, someone you can entrust valuable things with that you're going to deposit with to them. I remember when I was 16, summer I turned 16, I went to go work for my uncle down in the boot heel uh, he owned four stores. He had two video rental stores and two waterbed stores. And this was like 30 years ago. If you didn't know a waterbed store existed, they do. They did. I, don't, I haven't seen one in a long time. But, but for the entire summer, I worked for my uncle at these four stores. And at the end of the summer, he took off. <laughs> he took a vacation. He took his wife and his family, and he left for a week. And he left me in charge of these four stores. I was 16 years old. I worked every day from like 7 in the morning to 11 o'clock at night. And, and it was hard. I remember one day, the middle of the day, I just called my mom. I was 16. I called my mom. I was crying. It's like, I can't do this. My mom called my uncle. He got in a lot of trouble. I, I did some good things. I sold some water beds. I assembled some stuff. I did some bad things, but they were fixable for the most part. I did shut down traffic in the town of Malden one day. It's a small town. But uh, I was trying to back a trailer into a parking lot like at noon when all, you know, 
shut it down for about like 30 minutes. <laughs> it was kind of rough. Finally, a real kind stranger got out of his car and pulled me out of the truck and back to them. Brutal. Brutal experience. But here's the deal. I was a kid. I was 16. I wasn't quite ready to be entrusted with that much information yet. And I knew it, but I learned. I learned some really valuable lessons that summer to the point where I said, man, that's what I want to do. I want to own my own business. And I did that for many years. Who are we entrusting valuable things to? Are we praying right now about the person or maybe the people that God wants us to entrust, that he wants us to disciple so that we won't be just one generation away from losing discipleship? This notion of entrusting faithful people, that's supposed to be the manual for discipleship. With that, there's some specific challenges. You know there will be. I think the first challenge is this big wake-up call for how we do church. Because it's not just the idea of, hey, let's make sure folks are saved. Are we going to walk with them? We're going to live our lives with them. We're going to be disciple makers so we're not doing it wrong. I think the common thing in church seems to be, hey, let's get bigger. Lots of churches seem to be concerned about growing crowds. The way you can measure your success is if attendance is up. I think we need to be less focused on growing crowds and more focused on growing disciples. I know that's harder to measure. How is that person growing? But I think that's the deal. Now, is it important to come to church? Yes. (laughs) I would die on that hill. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 instructs us this way. It says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. This is the habit of some. But are we coming together just to be together? No. It says we encourage one another. And all the more as we see the day drawing near. I don't want us to stop assembling together. But if all we're doing is seeking crowds, I think we're doing it wrong. I mean, that seems to be the opposite of the way Jesus did it, wasn't it? He poured into these 12 guys and said, go. Carry it forward. And that's why we have a church today. If we want to make sure that God's church continues to flourish, that's what we have to do. Jesus wasn't trying to draw crowds. Now, he did. But if you remember through the gospel accounts, whenever he did, he'd thin them out. He'd give some really hard teaching. He wasn't about drawing crowds. Jesus knew this. And somehow I think we all know this. You can't disciple a crowd. You can teach them. You can inform them. But if you're really going to entrust someone, that takes life on life. That takes a discipling relationship. And so here we are today, and we have this responsibility. So let me ask you a question, and you don't have to raise your hand on this one. This is between you and God. Are you in that kind of relationship with anyone right now? At the end of this series, we're going to have some stuff in place that's going to be practical. It's going to be applicable because we want to help you be in discipling relationships. We'll have some training that will train disciplers. Be looking for more information on that. We're going to roll that out soon. We want to help people in this challenge, our responsibility. The second part of the challenge involves our temptation to just give up on discipleship too quickly because it is hard, because it is messy, because it does take time. But I think this is why Paul's telling Timothy, you got to be strong. And I know this applies to everybody. We're busy. We have jobs we got to get our kids to school. And we got to go grocery shopping. we got to clean the house. And we got to rake leaves. And we got to put up the Christmas tree. And we got to get the oil changed. Those are all things we've got to do. Those things have got to happen. I don't know about the tree. And, and so we're so busy, we don't get around to entrusting valuable information 
to faithful people who carry it forward. I get that. I mean, I live that. Believe me, I understand. But here's the deal. This is important. This is important for the life of the church. Making disciples who make disciples is how the church will continue to grow. So we can't fall prey to that temptation and just say, well, I go to church. And not invest. Not engage in people's lives. I used an example in the first week of this series. I don't know if you remember. I was talking about how discipleship grows and explodes. I said, you know, if I pour into somebody's life for a year and the next year we both do it, I pour into somebody and that person pours into somebody, and over time how it would just blow up. If we're discipling the way God wants us to, we'll have crowds here, but it won't be because we're focusing on crowds. It'll be because we're discipling well. We need to take the time to do that, even if it seems like a slow process even if it's hard, even if it seems tedious. Let me ask you this question. If I offered you a choice, said, hey, how about I give you a million dollars? Or what if you could wait just one month and take what's behind curtain number two? What, what if I took one penny and doubled it every day for an entire month, 31 days? And I said, you can have a choice. You're going to take the million bucks or you want to wait a month? I think most of us would take the million bucks. I mean, I understand. It's a lot of money. It's right there in front of you. Seems like that would be a good choice. But if we do that, we're missing out. Because if we just wait, we just wait on the penny doubled every day for 31 days, it ends up being more than $10 million. See, and that right there is the difference between focusing on the tyranny, the urgent, the things that we have to do versus eliminating discipleship, not thinking that's important falling to that temptation to avoid the challenge of depositing into somebody's life things that are really valuable and then equipping them to be faithful people who go and do it over and over again. Crowds don't reproduce crowds. But disciples can reproduce disciples. And they will if we engage. Because Jesus' discipleship methods, Paul's discipleship manual here in 2 Timothy, that's produced tons of followers. Here we sit. It's all because Jesus entrusted that message to those 12 guys. Paul entrusted his message to Timothy. And then faithful people have carried it forward. Last point, our legacy in Christ, because this is where I'm telling you, you can be that person. You can be that person who speaks into somebody's life for Christ. What if I asked all of us, hey, 20 years from now, will there be someone who says you were the single most influential person in their life? Let me ask it this way. What if you look back right now at your own life? Who's been the most influential people for you? Now, if someone just came to your mind, I don't even know that person, but I can tell you something with real confidence about them. I'm 100% sure that's somebody who has entrusted you with valuable things. I'm 100% sure that's someone who made a significant personal investment in your life. And I bet it was one-on-one. I bet it was life on life, the way Jesus did with his disciples, the way Paul did with Timothy. Those aren't the only examples from Scripture. It happens over and over. Elijah entrusted his ministry to Elisha. Moses entrusted his ministry to Joshua. If you want to leave a legacy, not a legacy for yourself, if you want to leave a legacy for Christ in you, if you want to ensure that God's church will continue to grow and flourish, we need to be making disciples who make disciples. And in our families, if we really want to leave that legacy, 
We've got to start with our own children. Who's your Timothy? Who's your Joshua? Or maybe you're Timothy and you're seeking, you're searching for a Paul to pour into your life. I love this apples of gold ministry God's really blessed us with here at the chapel. Follows the example from Titus 2 of women with hindsight. Women with experience, knowledge, and wisdom sharing that with younger women so that it can become their foresight. This is our manual today out of 2 Timothy 2 to make disciples who make disciples. Now to do that, for sure, Paul says, we've got to be strong. We've got to be strong in the grace that is in Jesus. And then we need to engage. We need to invest and entrust those valuable things that God has taught us to the next generation of God's church. Next week, we're going to continue here in 2 Timothy. We're going to look at specific methods that Paul used to disciple Timothy because we want this to be practical. We want to be doing this. Let's be a church of disciple makers. Let me pray. Daddy, (laughs) we don't want to be told we're doing it wrong. Maybe this is the first time we've heard the manual. This is the first time we've really been challenged with this notion of taking the responsibility to, to pour the things you've poured into us into others. God, help us to do that, not for our glory, not for the glory of Cape Bible Chapel. Lord, but for your glory, because you're so worthy. God, the things you've allowed to happen in our lives You've given us hindsight. Help us to to let that be somebody else's foresight. Help us invest even when it's messy. God, you're so good. We love you. Thank you for the chance to come and open your word and worship together. Help us to leave changed. Help us to leave different. We ask all those things in your son, our Savior, Jesus' name. Amen.